Welcome, everybody, to the Sports Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Dominic DiTola, and your co-host is... Chris Quinn. And today we're going to get into some very uh, different subject matter as far as a sports topic. Uh, I think it's one of the most fascinating events in NFL history. Uh, the 1989 NFL draft and the effect it had on the National Football League. Yeah, everybody says the uh, 83 and 89 drafts are the two best. And going and researching these, man, the 89 draft had so many amazing players. It It's crazy. It it basically produced all of the foot almost all of the football stars that we watched as kids yes essentially yes i mean it's one of the most interesting and cool things to look back on because it really shaped the way the game was played and the talent level of the entire game but it wasn't just Good stories. It wasn't just great players doing great things. We have a couple of crazy stories. Oh, and we, oh I got some great. We got some crazy stories. And some franchises really getting screwed over in the in the steroid era of football. And me leading to a drinking problem because of the Steelers' inability to do things with early draft picks. Oh, so it was the Steelers. That's what led you to drink. Yes, yes. A lot of poor quarterback issues. Let's be honest. Steelers, Padres, postseason. Yeah, a little bit different. <laughs> <laughs> All, right, All right, so let's, let's get, get into it. it. Uh, 89 draft, but I feel like it starts in 88. A little bit in 88. You know, yeah. because Dallas, the last game, Dallas loses mm -hmm. and Green Bay wins. Green Bay like goes to Arizona and beats them in an upset. Yes. And Dallas loses to, I forget who, but... Yeah, but they lose their last game, yes. which gives Dallas the first pick and Green Bay the second pick. Which is so ridiculous. This might be the most important loss of their franchise. Honestly, it shifted the balance of power yes. in the NFC and NFL for the next 10 years. Yes, it's crazy. And it leads to four months down the road over a two-day period and 12 rounds, 335 picks on April 23rd and 24th at the Marriott Marquis Hotel in New York, the first year they're doing the entire draft on ESPN. Yeah, I actually, uh, you can pull it up on YouTube. It's yeah. really bad footage, but oh, it is but really it's great. Oh it's my God. It's so fun. Chris Berman has hair. And he's a little skinny. A little bit. A little bit. Mel Kuyper Jr. actually makes a prediction that I have to bring up because it's so accurate. He goes, because people are kind of talking yeah. shit that Dallas drafts Troy Aikman first. Yeah. He goes, look, Troy Aikman is going to be their franchise quarterback, and in about three or four years, he's going to take them to a Super Bowl. Which is crazy because not only was he right, because he's wrong a lot. Yes. And he has that nice Eddie Munster-looking hairdo with the, the slick back hair. I can't take his hair. It just keeps getting taller and taller. It, it's, and Yeah, it's like building up a building. <laughs> but this is one of those instances where he really is so accurate with what Dallas is able to do with this quarterback. Well, and this is, I mean, Dallas's draft to begin with, with the level of talent that they get. And we'll get into all the other pro bowlers yes. that they end up getting Dal in a pro bowl where they give away, yes. essentially. But, like, uh, the one thing about Kuiper is he's always been consistent about a draft strategy where you need to find that franchise quarterback first for better or worse. And the picks that he's missed on, the picks that he's hit on, this is, you see it. Like, he's at least consistent in this type of thinking. This is the type of draft that he is going to excel in because he wants people to draft the franchise quarterback. Yeah. That's, and, this is his. Because it's the first pick overall. 
of the first round is Troy Aikman. Yes. And, you know, Troy Aikman, one of the best quarterbacks of the 90s, you know, he's the prototypical mold of a quarterback. And yes. you can see that. But the weird thing about Aikman is this draft is so loaded with talent that there were some people arguing that Aikman shouldn't even be the first pick. Yeah, I, I heard that a bunch and that Dallas should trade away this pick because Troy wasn't worth the bevy of guys that they could have gotten from him. Yeah. Which was a mistake. And and the, that and you know what I mean like Dallas made the right choice by going and picking up Troy because there was so much talent throughout this entire draft. And the funny thing is is that Troy Aikman in his senior year of college at UCLA, wasn't even first team all Pac-10. No. It was Rodney Pete who was drafted in like the fifth or sixth round by the Lions, who yes. was at USC. But that's what you see. That's where great recruiting comes in, is you see that he had the the he, pro he had the physical makeup. Yes. I mean, he's 6'4", 214. I yes. mean, you can tell strong arm, the way he throws the ball would fit well into any offense that you put him in, do whatever you asked of him. I mean, six-time pro bowler. I mean, Troy Aikman was the guy in the early 90s NFL. Yes, and he made Dallas. I mean, we see all the talent that Dallas picks up, but this is that first piece in the machine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just the best first pick for that year. I mean, it, and it went chalk, though, because all of the guys drafted after him within that top five were also – elite level prospects yeah that, that's why it was such a up in the air it was pretty much like if a team needed a running back they would have picked barry sanders first or if it, you yeah. know what i mean like it was really that need that really dallas lucked out on that they needed a franchise quarterback so they went and picked up troy aikman because these top five guys really you could have any one of them could have been maybe top three or four but yeah. any one of them could have been that top pick exactly and they went right and did it, and it was perfect. Here's my question, though. Um, like we were bringing up the Week 16, Green Bay wins, Dallas loses. If that doesn't happen, do you think Green Bay picks up Troy Aikman? Because well, see, I think he, they do. Here's the interesting thing about the Packers, who pick second. Yes. At that time, he was, I believe, a 10th or 11th round pick a couple of years before. Their quarterback, the one who got hurt and allowed Brett Favre to play in 92, was Don Mikowski. Interestingly enough, in 1989, the Packers had a winning record but missed the playoffs. Don Mikowski made the Pro Bowl in 89. He was kind of being groomed to be the next starting quarterback. If Green Bay has the first pick, honestly, I don't know if they take Aikman. Yeah. They might, but they might go in a different direction, which they ended up doing it too, but they might have gone in a different direction than the player they picked second because there are in the top five picks – three other Hall of Fame players in addition to Troy Aikman. Yes. And do you want to get into the Hall of Famers? No, no, let's just go down the way that's picked. Okay, so let's go great. with number two. Now let's go to number two, who is considered arguably the biggest non-quarterback draft bust in NFL history. Yes. And that is Tony Mandarich. And he was... Offensive tackle at Michigan State, a dominant, forceful player. A lot of his dominance and force, though, for the Rose Bowl winning Spartans in 87 and the Gator Bowl winning Spartans in 88, was led to a little bit of extra. Yes, yes. And, well, I want to bring this up because I thought it was so interesting. Um, the defensive 
tackle coach. You know how there's like yeah eight, defensive line coach, yeah. defensive line coach. Thank you. Yeah, um, that brought him to Michigan State. That was first kind of saw him in high school up uh, in Canada. Actually, was yeah. Nick Saban. Interesting. Yes. Wow. So Nick Saban saw this kid who was like six five and was like, "You got to come play for us at Michigan State. You'll start." And he did. And Nick Saban, I think, left like a year or two later. And he came back to Michigan State. And he came yeah. back to Michigan State. But, but yeah, yes. he, he, he uh, Mandarich was kind of a skinnier guy. Yes. He, he was a late bloomer. Yes, he was He was 6'6". Six, six, I think he was like 230. Yeah. And um, his brother was also an, or a, 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 a college school, a college player. That's, yeah. that's actually why he went to Michigan State, because they moved from Canada to, I think, Michigan, because his brother went to like Kent Kent State. Kent yeah. State. And that's why he got into this local, like, you know, uh, recruiting that Nick Saban went and was like, hey, we got to pick this guy up because And Nick he is Saban huge. went to Kent State. He's a Kent State alum. Yep. He actually played um, college ball at Kent State with Jack Lambert, Hall of Fame Steeler, and Gary Pinkle, the longtime coach at Missouri. Yeah. And I'm just saying, these are all these little webs that tie oh this God. together. It's my this, favorite. I was rock hard like the McRib coming back researching this podcast like I'm not gonna lie this took all of the spurginess in me to be like oh my god here we go here we go here we go here I'm we not go. gonna lie we're doing we're taping this in the morning I thought Dom was gonna have barbecue sauce all over his face and just be like no it's the it McRib. comes out December 2nd I cannot wait oh, oh okay god, I, I thought it was already out is. oh no it's that's why <laughs> that's why but anyway so back to Tony Rich. back yeah. to Tony back to Tony um he's kind of a skinnier kid when he gets there and he's kind of a late bloomer but in the late 80s NFL, it's something that started kind of in the 70s. Steroids are a thing. Yes, especially with linemen. Especially with linemen. And Mandarich, to his credit, because they're not illegal. I mean, they are illegal, but it's frowned upon yes. more so than anything else. They're it's not like, suspending guys. Yeah. Um, he decides to take them. And he becomes a very dominant left tackle in college. I heard he took uh, horse steroids. Yeah, was the uh, was the popular thing at that point was racing horse. Yeah, you know. Yeah, the uh, testosterone. I think the Canadian sprinter who beat Carl Lewis but got his gold medal taken away, Ben Johnson. Yep, he was taking the uh, horse steroids. But you could see the progress of his muscle mass. Yeah. It's scary. He like is two Connor Hannas, basically. Yes. That's not even a joke. Like he is so much bigger than everybody else. And then And that that's kind of what leads to his fool's gold nature. Yes. Is that he's bigger and stronger, but you're not looking at him fundamentally or technically. Yes. And in a run first conference like the Big Ten was at the time, go off a of Mandarich every play because he's bigger and he's stronger than all of the other players. And this myth and legend comes around him. This The scouts are drooling over him because nowhere at any time in NFL history do you have a guy who is as big or as strong or even as fast. I was going to say, his combine numbers are still some that people look at are like, wow, that's crazy. And there were Cowboys coaches who even considered taking him at number one. So let's talk about this because this is, in the Cowboys franchise, this is where Jerry Jones takes over. Finally, yes. This is the first Jerry Jones, Jimmy Johnson draft. He had finally purchased the team from Bum Bright. Tom and Landry is gone. Fires like 30 staff members. Yeah, and they're essentially drafting to remake the roster. Yes. This is pre-Herschel Walker trade, which we yes. could do an entire episode <laughs> on that. My Christ. But you see the possibility of them 
drafting Tony without this takeover probably would have been higher. So Tony yeah. could have went first if Jerry Jones didn't take over. Tony could have went. It's, Tom Landry so many, might have taken him because Danny White was still there and he was still linked at the hip to Danny ex White. Exactly, exactly. I mean, Steve Pallour was there, and that's what Kuiper kind of said where he was like, look, you take Aikman, Steve Pallour might start the first six games or however many games of the season, but you still take him. Yes, because he will become your franchise quarterback. Yes. It, it's a really great analysis by by Kuiper. And uh, Mandarich was funny, though, because I don't know if you had read it. I've read it years ago and read it again actually because thank you si for having all of your articles on the vault section you know digitally um they wrote a puff piece on mandarich yeah. about how he was this uh son of yugoslavian immigrants from canada who evolved into the incredible bulk that's what the nickname was for well it. they were saying that he was the best offensive line prospect ever yeah and he was a uh, he he quit school after the gator bowl to go down to muscle beach in fucking venice lifting weights and listening to guns and roses yep. like we're paradise city getting all jacked Hey, everybody. Just want to take a quick break to uh, let you know that our Sports Experience podcast is brought to you by Engel Studio here, and uh, they're here in Tucson for all your recording needs. I'll tell you what's crazy is the Zubas pants. Oh, the Zubas. Zubas! When you, when you look at them, you're like, these guys are a joke, right? Yeah. And if you said that back then, you they would be murdered. Yes, they would have <laughs> ripped your head from your body. They would have hung you from a lamppost with their Zubaz. Only the toughest guys were the Zubaz. Yeah, like I would never I would never talk shit about somebody 300 pounds, 66. Like and but that's what led into it. And yes. there was also this myth. Yeah, it was the myth. It was like um he went on Letterman, and he had talked about wanting to fight Mike Tyson because he was using it as leverage not to sign with the Packers. He referred to Green Bay as a village. Yep. He wanted bigger marketing opportunities, but like, he was the sexy pick. He was the intriguing pick. He's the pick you don't want to take home to meet your parents. <laughs> <laughs> but he is, and he was disruptive right off the bat oh and he was people said that his locker room attitude was exactly what you don't want like with Aikman where he throws 165 touchdowns three Super Bowls has an incredible postseason winning percentage over 32,000 passing yards Tony Mandarich on the other hand gets to Green Bay late yep and the interesting thing about Mandarich... Well, he tries to hold out for more money he holds out for more money he gets in late but the problem with Mandarich is he stops taking steroids when he gets to the NFL because, because they test for it. And there are interesting stories. And he's talked about this, how in college, how he'd cheat drug tests. He'd take a dog toy because you don't have to take your shirt off when you piss in a cup. He would tape it to, his, the back, to the small of his back, in the middle of his back, right? He would fill it with clean urine and he would run a catheter from the toy up behind his back, under his gooch and under his cock and have a piece of chewing gum at the end of the catheter, and it's he's carrying clean piss, someone else's piss around on yep. him. And when they asked him to pee in the cup, the catheter is right below his urethra, like right below his ding-dong, and it's fucking, uh, you know, right under his gluons. And he takes the gum off, and it goes in the cup. He did that for the Gator Bowl. He did that for the Rose Bowl. I mean, he was inventing all these different ways to cheat a drug test that you could in college, and he stops. And what ends up happening, he comes to training camp late. He doesn't, you know, he's not in shape. He's not bulked up. 
and he starts getting the, his ass beat. Well, I saw this. I thought this was interesting when he when he came to the combine. He was six six three thirty with eleven percent body fat. So he pretty much had no body fat on yeah. him. He showed up late to Green Bay, and he essentially lost like twenty pounds. Yeah, so he pretty much lost twenty pounds of muscle. It's not Mm. like he was an overweight guy. You know what I mean? Like he pretty much showed up at a different player. Yeah, and they were like, "What the hell is going on?" And they put him on special teams for the first year. I mean, during his first two years, they they thought he'd be the franchise left tackle. Oh, without a doubt, right tackle. Yeah, because he couldn't handle it. And there are highlights of Reggie White when he was with the Eagles, just destroying him. And in 90 and 91, after his first season, like you said, with special teams, he started 31 games and he was getting his ass beat. Yes. And not only that, he started getting addicted to painkillers. Well, here's throwing him off. Here's where the drug uh, psychosis comes in. So with steroids, I bet the aggression is at 10. Yeah. With painkillers and this lack of steroids, I bet his aggression is at like two. He was talking about having needles in his jock yeah. back in the day. And while he started 31 games in 90 and 91, he's not the prospect you want. Oh, no. By 92, when Holmgren, Mike Holmgren, Super Bowl winning coach for the Packers, basically the guy that resurrected him, good on you, he uh, he cuts him. He's gone by 92. Tony Mandarich is gone. Yeah, he doesn't he give play. a shit that they, he was their number one pick. He sees how pretty much bad he is like this is he was known up until ryan leaf and jamarcus russell as the greatest draft bust ever yep but to mandarich's credit because i want to give him credit for this 96 97 98 he makes a comeback with the indianapolis colts playing right guard i thought that was really really great because he sobers up he sobers up he has his shit together and he ends up starting for the Colts for three years. He was their Peyton Manning's first season. I know. It's awesome. And and starting pretty much every game. He wasn't yeah. like a rotation. He was like really on that line. He, is he the dominant force that he was supposed to be? No. But Not he's at a all. capable NFL starter who yes. resurrected some mishmash of a career, which is a great comeback story. <laughs> which you have to question. You have to question what he could have been if he didn't ruin his career with drugs. Because I'm not saying he would have been the – I'm not even saying he would have been a first-round draft pick, but he would have been a great offensive lineman throughout his career. Yeah, like he probably would have been like – if he was not roided up, somebody would have drafted him in 89 in a middle to later round who would have come in and been a capable NFL player and enjoyed a decade-long career. Yes. Because there's no hype around him. There's no nothing. But – That's not what happened. That's that's not what happened, and – Packers fans probably lament the fact of who the next three picks are. Well, it's interesting, and I want to stay with him for one more second. Um, With the way this played out, I feel like the Packers were angry 91, but happy 93, 94, because they get Brett Favre, and Brett Favre turns into their... Yeah, I mean... I I don't think they would have gotten Brett Favre if this landed any other way. I I still think they would have, because when Colmgren came in in 92, he needed a new quarterback, and their GM, Ron Wolf, who was with the Jets and absolutely loved Favre, but they missed out on him on one pick, they were willing to give anything for this developmental talent. So... 
they still I, probably they still probably would have drafted him. Well, the Packers would, would they acquired him through a trade because oh, the Falcons yeah, okay. drafted Favre. Because remember, I was talking yep. about the '91 Falcons, and we'll get into the fifth pick I because yep. he's the most entertaining player probably in the '90s. Yep. But uh, yeah, they they would have acquired him somehow if Wolf or the team that Wolf went to, if even if it wasn't the Packers, they would have found a way to to get, get him, him because they were so high on him. Exactly. Yeah. All right. All right. Cool. So that's number one. Number two. Now we get into number three. Who even him? Even number three has a ridiculously interesting story. Oh God! And number three, another Hall of Famer, running back Barry Sanders goes to the Lions, and his story ties back in with the Cowboys. Yes, it does. Which I I absolutely love it. So let's start with Barry Sanders in college. Mm-hmm. Well, let's start with him in high school. Okay. In high school, Barry Sanders, despite being one of the greatest NFL running backs ever, is not a large human being. No, I think he's 5'8". 5'8", eight. Eight, about 190. Yep. He didn't start at running back until his senior year full-time. He was a kick-and-punt return guy. He's lightly recruited. Nobody really wants him outside of Oklahoma State. Yep. He goes to Oklahoma State. Barry, again, is found sitting behind another Hall of Famer, Thurman Thomas, his first two years at Oklahoma State. But Barry leads the nation in kick returns because he's Barry fucking Sanders. He's a great player. There's a great quote from Barry Switzer, who was Oklahoma's coach at the time, who was saying to his players, look, I don't want you out there hurting Thurman Thomas because they have a guy behind him who will just absolutely destroy people. Sorry, that was like an Alex Jones impression. That is not Barry Switzer. That's all right. That's all right. We'll forgive you for that. But it's uh, this Oklahoma State era in the in the 80s it was when they were great and we see why they teeter off yeah and it's a post jimmy johnson oklahoma state exactly enough because jimmy johnson had tried to get troy aikman to go to oklahoma state didn't get him he went to oklahoma troy aikman gets hurt at oklahoma and they're not a passing team so when Barry Switz or when Barry Switzer says, "I'll send you wherever you want," it's fine. He calls his friend Terry Donahue at UCLA. Jimmy Johnson, who's at Miami, needs a quarterback. Yep. Tries to get Troy Aikman and doesn't get him. Finally, in '89, when he has the first pick, he tells Troy Aikman, "Look, I tried two times to get you. Now I can finally get you. God damn it! Now you have to come. <laughs> now you play. have to come and play for me." Yeah. Well, it's interesting because we see this Oklahoma State team, and we've talked about this before a little bit, but the repercussions that schools and programs face from prior years. From probation and, you know, suspension. how it really only hurts current students. And that was kind of the interesting thing because 86 and 87, Barry is Thurman's backup. In 88, he's the man. He has uh, arguably the best running season, possibly one of the best college seasons. He's the Heisman Trophy winner. He has over 2,000 yards rushing. I I think he has 32 combined, uh, 100 combined yards with his punt returns. Kick returns, yeah. It's Mm -hmm. it's the... The way he dominated was so ridiculous. And their their team has talent. Yes. But they're still in the big eight. They're a mid tier team. Yeah, no, he's they're the not the whole goddamn team. Yes. And the funny thing is, is Barry, he's the Heisman Trophy winner, eighty eight running away. I mean, he's obviously the most dominant player in college football. The problem is, like you were saying, 
all these past transgressions of Oklahoma State come back, they're going to be on probation in 89, and he still has another year of eligibility. Yeah, he's a he's a true junior, and this is this goes back even before Jimmy Johnson was coach, which yeah. I thought was interesting. Yeah. It goes back like three coaches prior to some bullshit. Yeah, you know? just some ridiculousness where, you know, the guy's already gone, but it's yeah. affecting the players. And not only are they facing probation, Barry Sanders' family doesn't have a lot of money. Yep. So it's almost as we talked about in our ABA episode with the Spencer Haywood rule – he petitions and declares himself for the draft, and the NFL really can't do anything about it because the only league that was drafting underclassmen was the USFL, and that had folded four years prior, three years prior. Well, the, the NFL made the correct decision to, they did. to back him because then it, it set a precedence to let juniors. True juniors, not redshirt juniors. Yes, yeah. true juniors come out. And Barry did that and put together one of the greatest careers for a running back in NFL history. I mean, just absolutely insane. Over 15,000 rushing yards, 94 touchdowns. He averaged for his career five yards a carry. That is insane. Yeah, I mean, absolutely insane. He had 10 touchdowns receiving and 352 catches, even though he wasn't a main running back. Like, I'm in a running back in a passing offense. They didn't really ask him to do that. They didn't uh, dump the ball to him, really. Yeah, he won the 89 Offensive Rookie of the Year, the 1997 Co-MVP with Brett Favre, 10 Pro Bowls, and he did this in 10 years. Yep. I don't know if there was a better running back in that era. No. I mean, people talk about Emmitt Smith and but, who's better, but – Emmett Barry Smith, Sanders didn't have a great offensive line. I was just going to say, he Emmett Smith was on a goddamn line. This a is a great team. We alluded to it in our Bobby Lane episode. Yep. Barry Sanders managed to put together this career on a team that is likely voodooed. What I love about Barry Sanders' career is it his college and professional almost mirror each other. Where they he really is, do. he really is just like the entire focus, and defenses still can't do shit about it. Yeah, it, it was absolutely crazy. And the thing about Barry is that everybody remembers he retires after 10 years in the league. After the 98 season, he sends a uh, news notice to the Wichita local newspaper Yeah, and says, I'm retiring from the Detroit Lions, and he walked away. Just like Megatron did a decade or a decade and a half later. It's got to be it, the running back position has to be the hardest one because of the toll it takes on you, I feel like. Because yeah. especially the way that those offenses ran just completely around him. But he never took big hits because he was so shifty and yep. squirming and everything like that. He One was, of the probably the best cut. You know how like yeah. a guy has a great cut to the right, to the left. He probably was one of the best at that. And like guys like Emmett Smith behind a good offensive line, it'd be like Emmett for seven, Emmett for ten, Emmett for fifteen. Barry was just it was like a jazz artist where it would be like Barry for three, Barry for minus four, Barry for 80. Yep. Like just the breakaway speed. He had it all. And it's a shame he retired earlier than he could have been. He likely would have been the NFL's all-time leading rusher. You know, I think there's almost no doubt he would have been. Yeah. I, I think Emmett Smith would tell you, you know, yes. that yes, if Barry played as long as I did, he would have it because, you know, he had a 2000 yard season the year that he went, uh, won the co-MVP with Favre. I yeah. mean, absolutely insane. Him and Aikman and the next two guys we talk about are all 90s decade players. All Hall of Famers. All Hall of Famers. Tony, you missed out. Tony, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, 
Pick four comes up. Pick four. Um, the Kansas City Chiefs with Carl Peterson and Marty Schottenheimer finally at the helm trying to resurrect a dead Chiefs franchise. And they pick... Derek Thomas. One of the most dominant outside linebackers of his era. Possibly uh, the best pass rusher. People... I, yeah. I kept watching stuff on him. He was people, a pure pass rusher. Yes, yes. yes. I mean, when you think of pure pass rushing ability he's that perfect three four outside linebacker four three defensive end that you just send up the field to get the quarterback out of university alabama roll tide randy ford had to throw that one in there well it's it's interesting because he was so dominant he had seven sacks in one game twice twice he did it twice and in one of the games, they actually lost on a Hail Mary at the end of the game I to know. the Seahawks. And he had David Craig down for the eighth sack, but he escaped. But, I mean, just 6'3", 243, nine Pro Bowls, three All-Pros, All-Decade team of the 90s, 126 and a half sacks. I thought that was absolutely ridiculous. He never dropped off his production rate of sacks but he and was, pass rushing. But he had 41 forced fumbles. Yep. Not only was he sacking guys, he I mean. taking the, it away. The pressure that he put constantly, constantly on the quarterback. There's a great story Bill Cowher tells, um, former Steelers Super Bowl winning coach who was the defensive coordinator under Schottenheimer at the time. And Schottenheimer's like, look, I like this Thomas guy. Peterson's like, I like this Thomas guy too. Send him down. I'll send you down and give him the workout from hell because he didn't show up to the combine. They had to go to Tuscaloosa to work him out at Alabama. And he barely broke a sweat. Yeah. And they're like, if this guy's there, you know, we're taking, we're him. taking him. And they did. And throughout those dominant 90s Chiefs teams that came so close but never got to the Super Bowl, yes. Thomas and Neil Smith, I mean, those were the guys for them. And unfortunately for Derek, his career was cut short, not by retirement, but by a car accident on, uh, I think it was New Year's Day or just after New Year's Day 2000, he was driving to see the Rams play their playoff game in Missouri um, against the Vikings. And he got on a car accident and paralyzed. Yeah. And then he died, I believe, of a blood clot about a month later. Yep. And very, very tragic. But and, yeah, another one of those just unbelievably sad stories. And, and these aren't guys like Sanders and Aikman and Thomas who were like Hall of Famers who waited on the ballot and had people like, you know, lobby for them and sports writers lobby for them they were guys that were first ballot hall of famers because yep. people have eyes yeah <laughs> like, no seriously uh, an interesting fact i want to go back on um for this draft it was the first one televised and they actually invited troy aikman and he they, showed up they and he was the he only up. one the only player to show up and they were like all right next time we need more people to show up and they did. And they, they ended did. up doing it. And it turned it into a spectacle. It yeah. Was great. It turned it turned into what the draft is today. It I is. thought that was interesting because of I thought about this with Derek Thomas not going to the combine. You wouldn't even hear of that nowadays. Like they no. would almost for sure, if not have like a private workout, for sure go to the combine. Yes, exactly. So it's this NFL is really starting to shape with this draft. And I just want to say that. These top five picks, you have Aikman, best quarterback pretty much of his era. Barry, one of the, one of the best, but yeah. Yeah, I was going to say. We you see, got Steve Young, and you got other guys. And you got, Brett yeah, Favre. Favre. Yeah. Um, but then you have Derek Thomas, one of the best pass rushers, and we get to... Barry Sanders, and then the fifth pick, which is 
the best one, and I got to do a Berman and Tom Jackson impression. Yes. Prime time. <laughs> but it's so ridiculous to think that Deion Sanders drops to five. Do, do you want to know why, though? Part of the reason why is Dion kind of wanted to manipulate the draft a bit. The Lions were kind of interested in drafting him. The Chiefs were kind of interested in drafting him. But he didn't want to go he to the He did these. not want to go to the Midwest. Yes. He didn't want to play in cold weather. He's a Florida guy, went to Florida State. You know, he's the greatest cover corner in NFL history. And there is no I will I will debate anybody who says there's a better one. He is the all-time best man-to-man cover corner in league history. Yeah. And he had at that time the perfect size too. And even now it's perfect size. 6'1, 195. But he manipulated the draft to where he didn't want to play for those teams. But Atlanta's sitting there perfectly, and they need asses and seats, so it's a perfect marriage. Perfect marriage. And you see him in that post-draft interview with Andrea Kramer, and she had said something like, well, what would have happened if the Lions would have taken you? And he's in this tracksuit, run DMC yep. style, with an absolutely perfect Jerry curl. And he says, you know, Andrea, if Detroit took me, they'd have to. I'd ask for so much money, they'd put me on layaway. Yes, it was perfect because... <laughs> That's essentially what he was feeling. He was like, I'm not going to these cold markets, which I wonder if they were as into, like if that really was what deterred them or if they were like, look, we're not, you're not even number one on our board. I'm going to guess everybody wanted him, though. Because, everybody outside the Cowboys who needed a quarterback. Yes. I think everybody would have wanted him. And Atlanta – at that time was not a good franchise. They were still playing in the Braves old stadium. They called the Georgia Dome before they tore it down, the house that Dion built, mm -hmm. because he was the guy that brought people to Falcons games. He was the guy that made that team exciting. Yeah. I mean, eight-time Pro Bowler, six-time All-Pro, two Super Bowls, 1994 defensive MVP of the entire league, all-decade team, nine pick sixes, one fumble return, six punt returns for touchdowns, three kick returns for touchdowns. He had three receiving touchdowns for the Cowboys in 1996 when they were down on their roster because everybody was hurt. I know. I thought that was ridiculous where they were just like, look, we need somebody out there to catch something. And Dion was just like, I can play. Put, put yeah, me in, coach. I'll, I'll be receiver or cornerback. I don't give a shit. And he was just like, okay. And he was, and he was great. He was just an, a phenomenal athlete. Yes. Just a phenomenal athlete. And he, another guy like Thomas, like Sand, like Barry Sanders, like Troy Aikman, you didn't have a second thought when his Hall of Fame eligibility came up. You're no. like, that's our guy. I know, which makes, and then we're going to keep going back, which makes Tony's the the worst pick ever. But green, if you're Green Bay, you just see that and you're like, Ace Ventura, when he finds out Einhorn is a man, you're just crying in the shower. Exactly. Just with a plunger on your face. Why, God damn it! Why did I pick Tony at number two? But as we had talked about before, and I wanted to bring this up, we've discussed the first five picks. Yep, but there's still a shit ton more. There are 19 pro bowlers drafted over the next rest of the draft, over the next 330 picks. And these are, like, really good players. I mean... The Bears went back-to-back -back in the first round at 11 and 12. Donnell Wolford, solid cornerback, made a Pro Bowl. Trace Armstrong, great pass rusher from Florida, made a Pro Bowl. Eric Metcalf was drafted by the Browns at 13. He made multiple Pro Bowls. Eric Metcalf, a I don't— great returner. As a Steeler fan growing up, when he was on Cleveland, 
he was the last guy you wanted to see returning a kick or yep. a punt. And he was an all-around player. Like the best way I can describe him to younger listeners and people who aren't really don't really know about 90s NFL, Eric Metcalf was a running back, wide receiver, returner. He was basically Christian McCaffrey before Christian McCaffrey was a thing. Like the Browns used him as a running back. The Falcons, he had over a thousand yards receiving one season and their run and shoot offense as a receiver. Yep. There was one game I remember 93 in at uh Municipal Stadium in Cleveland. He took two punt returns back in the same game against Pittsburgh. Just and these aren't like run-of-the-mill punt returns. They were electrifying. Yeah, no, he was absolutely a, a great player that went 13th. Yeah, it, which 13. is just ridiculous. I, I thought an interesting stat, which pretty much made Dallas the franchise that we know that they are in the 90s, is they, in the first four rounds, had a pro bowler drafted, because they were first, obviously. Yeah. Picked. But they had a pro, pro bowler every single time. And like we were talking about pre-podcast, they literally traded one away. Like, yeah, Steve Wisniewski to the Raiders. We don't really need the whiz. <laughs> Was yeah, he was like, one of the Jesus. first picks of the second round. They I traded know. him to the Raiders, but they also drafted Tony Tolbert. Yep, in the uh, as in a the defensive fourth. end. He was in that great Dallas '90s defensive line rotation. Yeah, Mark Stepnoski, who was one of the best centers. They used to nickname they nicknamed him Dalton from Roadhouse because yeah. he was smaller. Because everyone was like, "Oh, I thought you'd be bigger," but he was one of the most agile, fantastic centers of the 1990s for the Dallas Cowboys. Well, this is where you see the Cowboy franchise. They turned it around. They drafted Moose Johnston, who was Emmett Smith's blocking fullback yep. for a decade. For a decade, yeah. It, it sucks because I hate the Cowboys. It was. It's interesting where you hate these teams in your little regions. I remember talking with my brother-in-law, and I was like, man, I really hate the Cowboys. And he's like, the Cowboys? I don't care about the Cowboys. <laughs> I really hate the Packers. And I remember thinking like, I don't give a shit about the Packers. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it's such an indifference where I'm like, I just don't care about him. And he's fe he felt the same way about the Cowboys. But growing up, you know, in anywhere in the West Coast, yeah, you have Cowboy fans everywhere, and you're just like, fuck that team. Oh yeah. But I mean, the first round still littered with with Pro Bowlers. Wayne Martin, a defensive end from Arkansas for the Saints, great player. Andre Risen, which we could probably do an episode about. Bad oh, for move. sure. Wide receiver with Tony Mandarich at Michigan State. Yep. Drafted by the Colts, had a very successful career with the Falcons and Chiefs. Carnell Lake, who is one of my all-time favorite players, a Steeler. He was a linebacker in college at UCLA with Aikman. They switched him to safety. He played free safety, strong safety. He played cornerback the year Rod Woodson was hurt, and they went to the Super Bowl. He like honestly, Carnell Lake is one of the most underrated defensive backs of his era. He yeah. was he was that good. Just an absolute turnover machine. And the reason why in 1997, Brett Favre and Barry Sanders shared the MVP, because Peter King gave Carnell Lake his MVP vote. And Sanders and Favre were tied. Oh, interesting. Yes, that 97 team, man, with Lake was really good. But that's, we, that's really interesting. Yeah, we talked about Johnston, Robert Massey, a good cornerback for the Saints and Cardinals. Um, Wesley Walls was drafted by the 49ers. He barely played for them, but then he goes to Carolina and, and becomes, becomes a pro bowler. Yep. Great tight end. Mark Stepnoski. Marv Cook was a good tight end for the Patriots. Even this is pre Bledsoe, so you know he had to be doing something yeah. good. I mean, this is when they were going to move the team to St. Louis. Tony Tolbert, we talked about from UTEP for the Cowboys. Tony Martin, a great receiver for the Chargers. He led the league in uh, uh, touchdown catches in 1996. Dave Meggett, 
also a great return man with a long criminal history. The Giants drafted. Ooh, we could get into that one. Chris Jackie, the Packers drafted, was their kicker on their Super Bowl team. Marion Butts was a great running back for the Chargers. One of the best names. Oh, very much so. He was Dion's teammate at Florida State. Mark Schlereth, who you see on ESPN, part of yeah. the whole greasing up the jerseys uh, offensive line for the uh, Denver Broncos. Yep. Went to the Redskins, too, won multiple Super Bowls, had a great career. I bet the NFL dreams of drafts oh, with the, the amount intrigue. of talent. Yeah. And then the... Last pick in the not the last pick of the twelfth round, but in the twelfth round, the yep. Steelers took an offensive guard who did not even play college football, but was a Division II wrestling champion, Carlton Hasselrig, who never played college football. Never did. I thought it was so ridiculously interesting when I'm like scrolling through and I saw that, and there's like this big thing like never played college football, yeah. standout wrestler. You're just like. Wait, seriously? And he's no, like, he was, dude. Pro bowler. Yeah, pro bowler. In 1992, when Barry Foster ran for 1,690 yards yep. and had his incredible season, starting right guard, yeah. Carlton Hasselrig. What an amazing athlete. Yeah. To, oh, yeah. To make that transition. It's it's almost insane where he's like, look, WWF is not banging down my door. I got <laughs> to make this career. Well, you know, the, the funny thing is, and why this draft kind of leads me to drink, is... The Steelers drafted an offensive lineman in the first round, Tom Ricketts, out yeah. of Pitt, who was Stepnowski's teammate. How could you not see that he's better? But they had two first-round picks because they had traded Mike Merriweather, who was the namesake of my fantasy Tucson comedy football team last year. It was Mike and the Merriweather girls, 2019 Ooh. champions. Woo! <laughs> but they traded the pick away, so they had the eighth pick because they were so shitty, and they drafted Tim Worley, a running back out of Georgia. He was kind of the second guy behind Sanders everybody thought was a consensus. But the problem with Worley was he was an eye back at Georgia. And if you think football strategically, you're in the power eye formation. The Steelers didn't at that time run an eye formation. They ran out of the pro set, the split backs. And it's a lot different as far as how you see the field, how you make cuts, how you read blocks. And Chuck Knoll and the offensive staff were very adamant about using this instead of playing to his strengths. And Worley didn't really get it. He was supposed to replace Merrill Hodge, but never really did. He didn't fit into the system. He didn't fit into the system, number one, despite being a phenomenal athlete yeah. and a hell of a prospect. He not only had that, he had fumbling issues, which led to the coaching staff losing trust. Then he got into drugs. Which led to Dom's alcoholism. Well, which led to the team after Noel left, because Barry Foster was in his doghouse, he was suspended for the 92 season when Cowher took over. Yeah. Foster balls out, and then he's gone to Chicago the next season. So, And I saw it because we were watching that NFL draft where people were talking about Worley being a better prospect than Barry Sanders because Barry yeah. Sanders was so small. And then there was one, and I forget who it was, he was just like, you're so wrong with that. The, yep. whole, the gaps are not vertical. Tom Jackson. They're, they're, yeah, the they're horizontal. Dude, Tom Jackson is the man. And I he was Tom so Jack. unbelievably right with that one little comment about Barry Sanders. You're just like, yeah, he's not jumping over. Like, he's not. The well, the shorter you are as a running back, the sometimes better. It, it, it generally always is better because there's less of a target to hit. You can hide behind your offensive lineman. And the lower sense of gravity when you're coming in together. Exactly. Yeah, well, they teach wins. you that. That's like the first thing yeah. they teach you. And pop warner there's like get as low as you can you're just like why and then they show you <laughs> but then miami then the next pick they take sammy smith who was an unbelievable bust yeah he was at florida state and he never 
And they and they did that with multiple running back picks during the Marino era. They never found the, the right guy. Yeah. The best one of the best parts though was the Jets at 14, though. I don't know if you saw this with Kuiper. They took Jeff Lagerman, who had a decent career with the Jets and Jaguars. He was a, an inside linebacker that they turned into a pass rusher, oddly okay. enough. But he was like way overdrafted for yeah. the 14th spot. And Kuiper's like, I don't think the Jets know how the draft works. <laughs> And he was just shitting on it. And you can tell Chris Berman, who's a Jets fan and an old AFL guy, is just like, God damn it, Kuiper, you're right. I hate this team. I know. When you when you actually look at the pick, you're like, damn, that's so right. <laughs> but yeah, it was yeah, it was just one of the most entertaining and exciting and deepest drafts ever with so many standout characters and four Hall of Famers and five picks. Yeah. But what I wanted to get to is okay. because this year and this is most important, and he's probably the only Broncos player I liked when I was growing up in Denver, there's now a fifth Hall of Famer who was drafted at number 20 overall. Oh, yes, yes. A hard-hitting safety, decleater of Christian Okoye, two-time Super Bowl winner, all-decade 90s team out of Arkansas, Steve Atwater. Finally, they let him in, because if you were privileged enough to watch him play in his prime, he was the ultimate gamer, Steve Atwater. I mean, he was just the hardest-hitting, baddest motherfucker on the field for and those he was, defenses. He was drafted 20, 21, something Tw like that. Yeah, at number 20 At overall. number 20. Yeah, I mean, yeah. eight Pro Bowls. And this is the thing. If Steve Atwater played now, he'd be an inside linebacker. Oh, yeah. Because he was a big dude. He was 6'3", 218. Like I said, the eight Pro Bowls, the two All-Pros, the two Super Bowls, 24 picks. I mean, he was the linchpin of that defense when they transitioned away from those dominant 80s defenses the Broncos had into the 90s when they finally started getting over the hump in the Super Bowl. Like, nobody went across the middle of the field and didn't have Steve Atwater in the back of their mind when they played Denver. When the Broncos went from that really cheesy Bronco symbol to, like, the really douchey one. Yeah, and right. they couldn't find that middle ground of it no. being cool. They're just like, look, we're going to be douches or we're going to be cheesy. Yeah, it went from, like, the garish 1970s to, like, let's go full Ed Hardy, bro. Yeah, bro, <laughs> come on. You better fucking hit that. You better fucking make that fucking tackle, but that's, bro. That's what's so incredible. One out of every four picks at the beginning of this draft I, was a Hall of Fame player. I love that, yeah. Just incredible. And the 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 bust that Tony Mandarich was because he was, of course, looked at as the greatest offensive line prospect. And what it was was he was the greatest steroid user of that era. Yeah, and when he decided to play clean. But I will give him credit for this. Unlike Ryan Leaf and Jamarcus Russell, he found a way back and found a way to rebuild his reputation as a player. That's what was really so sad was he had NFL talent and kind of wasted it with his steroids. So I'm and not the saying media hype train and yes, all that other stuff. All of it. Yeah. All of it. And the Zubas. I think Zubas. I think that's what really took his career down. It not really not the roids. It was the Zubas. Yes. <laughs> Thank you all. Hey everybody. Thanks for listening to that podcast. This is just a stock message at the end of all of our podcasts. So we hope you enjoy you listen to whatever athlete that was. Give us a follow at the Sports Experience Podcast on Instagram. Also, myself at Sequin Comedy on Instagram. Also, Totola Dominic on Instagram. Just follow us all around. If you have any suggestions for any athletes you want us to do, shoot us an email at the Sports Experience Podcast at gmail.com. And we always are recording right here at Angle Studio. Thank you all very much.